Hello, Earnings Call listener. My name is Hadi Youssef. I run this earnings season podcast, but I also run the Borster Earnings Call mobile app, and that's what I wanted to quickly tell you about today. We've created a dedicated app for listening to earnings calls. What I mean by that is that we've basically created the Spotify for earnings calls. Our app lets you add any company to your watch list. You can download any earnings call to your phone. You can set notifications for specific companies for when a new call is available. You can also see the exact date of the earnings call. And if there is a company that isn't on our app yet, you can request a company within our app and we will promptly add it. Making earnings calls easy to access is something that I care a lot about. It's why I created this earnings season podcast. But obviously, we cannot add every single earnings call that gets published on this podcast, or else you'll be having hundreds of episodes every week. And so, we've created a dedicated app where you can go and pick and choose the exact earnings calls、uh, you're interested in. And what we post on this earnings season podcast are basically kind of the highlights or the most notable earnings calls. But in the show notes of this episode, I've included a video demonstration where I walk you through all the features that I just described for our app. And I also included the link to the App Store where you can go there and see the description of the app and the reviews. You know, I'm really proud of the feedback we've gotten from our users. And,、uh, you know, pleasing and satisfying our, our users and our customers is, is something that I、uh, take pride in. And, and as a team, we、uh, really pride ourselves on that. And so, I don't want to take more of your time and, and keep you from listening to the earnings calls you've selected today. So, without further ado, here is your earnings call. Call is being recorded. Your line will be muted for the duration of the call. We will now go live to the presentation. Please stand by. At this time, I would like to turn the call over to JPMorgan Chase's Chairman and CEO, Jamie Dimon, and Chief Financial Officer, Jennifer Peepsack. Ms. Peepsack, please go ahead. Thank you, operator, and good morning, everyone. Before I get started, I'd like to thank Marianne for nearly seven years as CFO and for her support of me over many years, but particularly her support during my transition into this role. So a huge thanks to Marianne. And I just want to add my thanks to, I think, Marianne, as you all know, did a great job. Uh, smart, uh, uh, honest, thoughtful, help、uh, make the company a better company. So, all the thanks go out to Marianne, and we also all know that Jen is going to do a great job, too.、Oh, thank you, Jamie. Okay, so now on to the presentation, which, as always, is available on our website, and we ask that you please <coughs> refer to the disclaimer at the back of the presentation. Starting on page one, the firm reported record net income of $9.7 billion, an EPS of $2.82. On revenue of $29.6 billion with a return on tangible common equity of 20%. Included in these results are tax benefits of $768 million related to the resolution of a number of tax audits. Adjusting for this, as well as a few other notable items that largely offset, we delivered an 18% ROTCE this quarter. Underlying performance for the quarter was strong, with highlights including client investment assets in consumer banking up 16%, largely driven by net new money flows. In card, 11% growth in sales and 8% growth in outstanding. Number one in global IV fees year to date, gaining share across all products and regions. Steady results in the commercial bank with net income of $1 billion while continuing to invest in the business. And in asset and wealth management, record long term inflows, 
AUM and client assets. Overall for the firm, total loan growth was 2% year-on-year, but down 1% sequentially. Important to note here that these variances include the impact of loan sales and home lending as we continue to optimize our usage of capital and liquidity across the firm. Credit performance remained strong across businesses and we delivered another quarter of positive operating leverage. Now on to page two and some more detail about our second quarter results. Revenue of $29.6 billion was up 1.2 billion or 4% year on year as net interest income was up approximately 900 million or 7% on balance sheet growth and mix as well as higher rates. And non-interest revenue was up approximately 300 million year on year, largely driven by the absence of the card rewards liability adjustment we took in the prior year. Excluding that variance and the other offsetting notable items I mentioned, non-interest revenue was about flat with strong performance in consumer across auto lease, home lending production, and consumer and business banking, offset by lower markets revenue and IBPs as previously guided. Expenses of 16.3 billion were up 2% related to continued investments in our businesses, partially offset by a reduction in FDIC charges of approximately $250 million. Credit remains favorable with credit costs of $1.1 billion down 5% year-on-year. In consumer, credit costs of $1.1 billion were flat as higher net charge-offs were offset by net reserve releases. And in wholesale, credit performance remains favorable with a net charge-off rate of 8 basis points, which was fully reserved for in prior quarters. Once again, we do not see any signs of broad-based deterioration across our portfolios, both consumer and wholesale. Now on the balance sheet and capital on page three. We ended the second quarter with a CET1 ratio of 12.2%, up more than 10 basis points versus last quarter. In the quarter, the firm distributed 7.5 billion of capital to shareholders, and as you know, the Fed did not object to our 2019 CCAR capital plan. We are pleased to have significant flexibility with gross repurchase capacity of up to $29.4 billion over the next four quarters, and the board announced its intention to increase the common dividend to $0.90 cents per share, effective in the third quarter. Now on to page four in consumer and community banking. CCB generated net income of $4.2 billion and an ROE of 31%. Loans were down slightly year-on-year, -year, driven by home lending down 7%, reflecting the loan sales I just mentioned. However, card loan growth was healthy, up 8%. Business banking loans were up 2%. And auto loans and leases were flat. We saw strong deposit and investment growth year-on-year, -year, with deposits up 3%, and client investment assets up 16%, growing across both physical and digital channels. Card sales were up 11% as growth remained strong across key products. And across the franchise, active mobile users were up 12% year-on-year given continued engagement in our new features. For example, customers have opened over 2 million checking and savings accounts digitally, activated over 60 million Chase offers, and our enrollment and credit journey now exceeds 18 million. Revenue of $13.8 billion was up 11%. This increase included two notable items that largely offset. First, the current quarter included a negative MSR adjustment in home lending driven by update store model inputs. And in the prior year, as I mentioned, we had a rewards liability adjustment in cars of approximately $330 million. 
Consumer and business banking was up 11% on higher deposit NII, driven by margin expansion. Home lending was down 17%, although excluding the MSR adjustment I just mentioned, revenue would have been up 4%, driven by higher net production revenue on better margins and higher volumes, largely offset by lower NII on spread compression and lower balances. In cards, merchant services and auto was up 18%. Excluding the previously noted rewards liability adjustment, revenue was up 11%, driven by higher card NII on loan growth and margin expansion and the impact of higher auto lease volumes. Expenses of $7.2 billion were up 4%, driven by continued investments in the business and higher auto lease depreciation, largely offset by efficiencies and lower FDIC charges. Of note, the overhead ratio was 52% and we delivered significant positive operating leverage. On credit, this quarter included a reserve release in the home lending purchase credit impaired portfolio of $400 million reflecting improvements in delinquencies and home prices, which was partially offset by a reserve building card of $200 million. This was primarily driven by growth and to a lesser extent mix as the newer vintages naturally season and become a larger part of the portfolio. Net charge-offs were up $212 million. Excluding the recovery on a loan sale and home lending in the prior year, net charge-offs were up $80 million, driven by CARD as we continue to grow the portfolio. Now turning to the corporate and investment banks on page 5. CIB reported net income of $2.9 billion and an ROE of 14% on revenue of $9.6 billion. As a reminder, our performance was particularly strong last year, which featured record or near-record revenues in overall IB fees and equity markets. With that in mind for the quarter, IB revenue of $1.8 billion was down 9% year-on-year in a market that was also down. Advisory, debt underwriting, and equity underwriting fees were down 16 13 and 11% respectively reflecting lower levels of deal activity as well as a 10-year record share in equity underwriting in the prior year. It's worth noting on a year-to-date basis, we continue to rank number one overall and have gained share across all products and regions, benefiting from our continued investments in bankers. In advisory, we grew share and announced deal volumes and announced more deals than any other bank. In debt underwriting, we also rank number one, benefiting from our strong lead-less positions in leverage finance. And in equity underwriting, we have seen significant pickup in activity since the first quarter, and we continue to benefit from our leadership positions in tech and healthcare where there has been robust activity. Looking forward, the overall IB pipeline is healthy, though lower compared to the elevated activity we saw last year, and with fewer acquisition financing and refinancing opportunities in debt underwriting. Dialogue with clients remains active, and we expect strong deal flow to continue. Moving to markets, total revenue was $5.4 billion, which was flat year-on-year. Year. Our results include a notable gain in fixed income from the IPO of TradeWeb. Excluding this gain, markets revenue would have been down 6% year-on-year against a strong second-quarter performance last year. Fixed income markets was down 3% on an adjusted basis, with relative weakness in EMEA partially offset by increased client activity in North America rates and agency mortgage trading due to the changing rate environment. Equity markets was down 12% against a record second quarter last year. 
decline activity in a tough compare contributed to a year-on-year -year decline in equity derivatives. That said, cash and prime remain stable with client balances and prime reaching an all-time high. Treasury services and security services revenues were $1.1 billion and $1 billion, down 4 and 5% year-on-year respectively, with organic growth being more than offset by deposit margin compression. As a reminder, similar to last quarter, deposit margin was primarily impacted by funding basis compression rather than client betas, and at the firm-wide level there is an offset. Sequentially, Treasury services was flat and security services was up 3% on higher balances and fees. Finally, expenses of $5.5 billion were up 2% compared to the prior year, with higher legal expenses partially offset by lower performance-based compensation expense and the comp to revenue ratio for the quarter was 28%. Now moving on to commercial banking on page six. Commercial banking reported net income of $1 billion and an ROE of 17%. Revenue of 2.2 billion was down 5% year on year, predominantly driven by lower investment banking activity due to our outperformance last year and lower NII on slightly lower deposit balances. Also worth noting here, gross IV revenue of $1.4 billion was up 8% year-to-date on strong syndicated lending and M&A advisory activity, and we continue to progress solidly toward our long-term $3 billion target. Deposit balances were down 1% year-on-year and importantly up 1% sequentially, as balances have largely stabilized in total, although we continue to see migration from non-interest to interest-bearing deposits. Expenses of $864 million were up 2% year-on-year, driven by ongoing investments in banker coverage and technology. Loans were up 1%, with CNI loans being flat, or up 3% adjusted for the continued runoff in our tax-exempt portfolio. The story here remains unchanged. We saw solid growth in areas where we've been investing, including expansion markets and specialized industries, offset by lower acquisition-related and short-term financing activities. CRE loans were up 2% with modestly higher activity in commercial term lending where clients are taking advantage of lower long-term rates, offset by declines in real estate banking where we continue to be selective given where we are in the cycle. Finally, credit costs were $29 million with a net charge-off rate of three basis points. Now on to asset and wealth management on page 7. Asset and wealth management reported net income of $719 million with pre-tax margin and ROE of 27%. Revenue of $3.6 billion for the quarter was flat year-on-year, year, as the impact of higher average market levels was offset by lower investment valuation gains. Expenses of $2.6 billion were up 1% year-on-year, as continued investments in advisors and technology were partially offset by lower distribution fees. For the quarter, we saw record net long-term inflows of $36 billion driven by fixed income, and we had net liquidity inflows of $4 billion. AUM of $2.2 trillion and overall client assets of $3 trillion, both records, were up 7%, driven by cumulative net inflows into long-term and liquidity products, as well as higher market levels globally. Deposits were up 2% sequentially and up 1% year-on-year, and similar to the commercial bank, balances in total have largely stabilized. Finally, we had record loan balances up 7% with strength in both wholesale and mortgage lending. Now on to corporate on page 8. 
Corporate reported net income of $828 million, including the vast majority of the tax benefits that I mentioned earlier. Revenue was $322 million, up $242 million year-on-year due to higher net interest income driven by higher rates and balance sheet mix, partially offset by net losses on legacy private equity investments versus net gains in the prior year. And expenses of $232 million were down $47 million year-on-year. Finally, turning to page 9 in the Outlook, on this page, I'll just comment on NII, which should not be surprising given the changes to the rate environment. As you can see, we are updating our 2019 full-year NII outlook to about $57.5 billion. The reduction is based on multiple scenarios which assume, among other things, lower long-end rates and up to three rate cuts this year, which is consistent with current market sentiment. And as a reminder, this compares to a rate scenario that assumes zero cuts at the time of first quarter earnings. So to wrap up, the U.S. consumer remains healthy, overall credit is in great shape, and the earnings power of the company is evident. We delivered strong returns this quarter, and the diversification and scale of our business model positions us well to outperform in any environment. Understanding there is some macro uncertainty and potential headwinds from the rate outlook, we still expect to grow the franchise and will continue to strategically invest in our businesses, in technology, bankers, and beyond. And with that, operator, please open the line for Q&A. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We kindly request that you ask one question and only one related follow-up. If you would like to ask additional <coughs> questions, please press star one to be re-entered into the queue. Our first question comes from Jim Mitchell of Buckingham Research. Hey, good morning. Um, I noticed that uh, hard loan growth was particularly strong this quarter. I just wanted to get a sense of um, what you feel is, is driving that uptick, um, and do you think how sustainable is it at sort of 8% year-over-year growth? Sure. So on card loan growth, <clears throat> we feel very good about what we're seeing there. As we talked about at Investor Day, we have a real opportunity with our existing customers. And uh, we talked about how our existing customers have about $250 billion of borrowing off us. About $100 a billion of that is squarely within our existing buy box. So you can think of this as, as highly targeted to high-quality existing customers. And for the first time, we're actually seeing loan growth in card, uh, the majority of it coming from existing customers versus new customers. And so we're really shifting the paradigm there, and we feel great about being able to harvest the opportunity that we talked to you about at Investor Day. All right, and should we expect um, just sort of the, you to continue to reduce the, the mortgage footprint um, in this rate environment? So the, on the mortgage business, uh, I would say it was a good quarter on the back of the rally, and so we did see volumes increase, and, uh, and we saw some margin expansion as well, and so obviously highly rate dependent, but I would say the structural challenges in that business remain unchanged, and so uh, we continue to focus on optimizing the balance sheet across capital and liquidity, and so looking at loan sales and um, thinking about, uh, you know, de-risking the portfolio from a servicing perspective. So good quarter on the back of the rally, but doesn't change the overall structural challenges. Okay, thanks. Our next question is from Erica Najarian of Bank of America. Hi, good morning. Hi, Erica. 
Hi. Um, so I just wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier in that your guide um, uh, or your, your guide lower um, is including up to three rate cuts this year, uh, which would suggest to me that your net interest income is quite defensive in the face of rate cuts. I guess my first question is, could you give us your primary assumptions for um, that $500 million swing, particularly on deposit pricing? Okay, sure. So first I'll, I'll take you back to the first quarter where our guidance was $58 billion plus and we talked about some pressure on the long end at that point. That pressure has persisted uh, and in fact increased and so we pulled the impact of the long end through in terms of our outlook. And then on the short end, the range of outcomes are obviously quite broad and so we thought about a range of outcomes of one to three rate cuts. And so you can think about if, one, if it's one cut, 57.5 billion plus, and if it's more, 57.5 billion minus. And then based on current implies, you know, you can think about the third quarter as being 100 to 150 million um, below uh, the second quarter, and then a bit more than that in the fourth quarter, given we would have a full quarter at that point. Oh, and then in terms of on data, I mean, largely speaking, you, you can think of betas as being symmetric. Um, and so on the consumer side, uh, we saw little reprice on the way up, and so there is not a lot of opportunity on the way down. Um, on the wholesale side, if you look at large institutional businesses like uh, Treasury Services and Security Services, we are you know, largely at full reprice there, and so there should be opportunity uh, there and then in places like the commercial bank and asset and wealth management, we are still ahead of what the model would have assumed, but we have started to see reprice pick up there. Um, but importantly, I would say we're not going to lose any valuable customer relationships over a few ticks of beta, and so you know we'll see how it goes. It's all embedded in your assumption. And it's all embedded in. Got it. And, and just um, you know, going back to, to Jim's question, I noticed that um, investment securities balances continue to go up, and, and mortgage loans were down another five percent. You know, should we think about this as part of the overall? You, you were saying optimizing capital and liquidity, and therefore, as we think about it going forward, um, you know, we could also expect to see you know perhaps some relief in RWA growth and. Um, some relief in the continued reserve release as, as part of um, the optimization? Sure. So on the RWA side, yes, that is, that is precisely why we're doing it. And so uh, when you see the loan sales and home lending, yes, they are offset in securities purchases, which are more efficient from a capital perspective as well as a liquidity perspective. So yes. Um, having said that, on, on reserves, I mean, reserves are not necessarily going to be, um, to, to be impacted directly by that because, of course, that will depend upon the environment and the mix of the portfolio that remains. And I would just say our standardized capital ratio is the 12.2. Advance is 13. Advance is obviously a far more important and relevant economic number. It simply does not make sense to, all, to own all mortgages when you're constrained by standardized and you can't securitize. Got it. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mike Mayo of Wells Fargo. Uh, hi. So the efficiency ratio went from 56 to 55% year over year, um, and I guess that's with some accelerated tech spending. Uh, so 
do you plan to keep this pace of tech spending going? And what's the current update on that tech spending? Where is it connecting? Where is it not connecting? Because I think you said you'd accelerate it for a couple of years, and then maybe we'd see more of the results in 2020, 2021. So can I, can I just take that, uh, that one? So it's about $11.5 billion today. I think it was a little bit lower last year. Uh, you know, if we had to say what it is today for next year, it would be something like 11 and a half. Uh, and I think it's becoming, only becoming more efficient. But you really have in tech is something's becoming cheaper all the time. And then you're also uh, investing money all the time, which we're going to do regardless of the environment. So we're not going to uh, cut, you know, things we're trying to build like uh, my, my reward programs and chase my loan and, and uh, the credit journey because there's a recession or something like that. So. So Daniel and Gordon will tell you right now that they think they get more get more efficient spend, and we shouldn't tell people to spend whatever you want. But we will we you have to spend to win in this business, and you know, we're very efficient. We're very questions about how we spend in technology. We're going to do it regardless of the environment, and we'll try to get more efficient in tech spend too. That's right, and our investments in technology create capacity in terms of productivity to continue to invest in. And we've talked a lot about AI and machine learning. It's early innings there, and there's a lot that we're going to be able to do uh, to invest there and become more productive. And then cloud, uh, you know, developers can become more productive using the cloud. Yeah, like it's amazing. Our fraud costs, with all the things going on in the world today, are down because of effectively because of AI and big data and stuff like that. And it's, so it's hard to completely imagine new invest. You look at our client investment has to do 16%. Uh, you know, a portion of that was you invest. And obviously, you invest costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build. So you got you to put all these things in perspective about how you try to make these decisions going forward. And then follow-up, uh, Jamie, you mentioned the environment, all the things taking place in the world. How is the environment now? I mean, on the one hand, you have trade war, you have lower interest rates, you have capital markets, which are down for the big banks. You have a lot of pessimism. Um, on the other hand, you know, you highlighted your results. What's, yeah. you know, I look take at, the when you take the temperature of the environment, what's the temperature? It's, it's not that bad. You know, uncertainty is a constant. The one thing in life is you know it's going to be uncertain going forward. And geopolitical tension is kind of a constant. Those things may be a little bit higher now than normal. Uh, but we, I think what you see is global growth is north of 3%. You kind of expect the United States to be 2.5% this year. The consumer in the United States is doing fine. Business sentiment is a little bit worse, mostly probably driven by the trade war. Uh, and when you travel around the world, you know, that Japan is growing and Europe is growing a little bit and Brazil has gone from negative four to zero. Uh, you know, a lot of countries have opportunity to expand. They're not doing great, but they should be doing better, like Mexico and Turkey. So, you know, I wouldn't get too pessimistic yet. And obviously the Fed will react to, you know, with the, the data they see. And you know, I would say it's more important what's going on than just what the Fed does. If the Fed's cutting rates because we're going to recession, that's not a good rate cut. If the Fed actually raises rates one day because we're booming, that's not so bad. All right, thank you. Our next question comes from Glenn Shore of Evercore ISI. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm not sure if I missed it, but I think total average loans were up 2% year-on-year, but that was impacted by the, the loan sales. Can you tell us either size of loan sales or what average loan growth was up year-on-year -year without that? So yeah, there's a few things going on in loan growth, uh, as you as you say, Glenn. So we have the loan sales. We also have the runoff of the tax exempt portfolio. So you can think about loan growth probably closer to four percent if you adjust for those items. And 
importantly, as we always say, loan growth is an outcome, not an input, and we feel good about the loan growth that we're seeing in terms of the areas where we're investing. Uh, and then, and you know, for the full year, you can think about a number if you adjust for the loan sales and XDIB uh, of two to three percent full year. Okay, um, appreciate that. And then, just curious on the non-interest bearing deposits only being down two percent year on year. We've seen a lot bigger numbers at some peers. Uh, is that just strength of J.P. Morgan franchise, or, or, or are you doing anything actively to, to, to manage that lack of mix shift? So as I said, uh, we, we are seeing balances stabilize in uh, the commercial bank and AWM. We are still seeing some migration um, from non-interest bearing to interest bearing, but largely we're seeing those balances stabilize. And then uh, we do, of course, have uh, continued growth in the consumer bank. And um, the, the second quarter is typically seasonally high in the consumer bank. So we have some growth in non-interest bearing there. And, and even in the consumer bank where we've seen growth decelerate, that's largely as a result of consumer spending. So that feels healthy as well. Okay, maybe last one. On, on Appreciate the guide on 2019. It, it, because it's a, a, a half, if you looked forward into 2020 with no incremental rate cuts, is it remotely linear? In other words, if we think about if the ongoing rate and curve environment persists into next year after the two or three cuts this year, are we looking at a billion or is it way too complex to, uh, to oversimplify like that? Yeah, it's probably more complicated, uh, Glenn. And so just given the range of outcomes are as broad as they are, and importantly, if we're looking at cuts that are insurance cuts that sustain the expansion versus cuts that may be in response to a broader economic slowdown, you know, there are other things that we would be talking about. So um, we're not going to give further guidance on 2020 until we know more. Okay, okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Our next question is from Gerard Cassidy of RBC. Thank you. Good morning. When you take a look at your merchant services business, you had some really strong growth year over year. I think it was up 12%. And then your card volumes, uh, excluding the commercial card, were also up very strong. Can you share with us what's driving that strong growth, that double-digit rate of growth? Thanks for noticing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I would say that is, uh, you know, firing on all cylinders. So it's brand, it's people, it's products. Um, it does certainly help to have the backdrop of a healthy U.S. consumer as well. And in fact, retail sales this morning um, looked strong. So you know, we can we can expect that to continue. Is it more the market, as you just referenced, the retail sales, they were strong. Is it more that, or are you guys also seeing gains in market share that gives you an added boost? Yeah, we, we, we have taken share in, in a little bit of share in card. As you know, we're number one in sales there. I think importantly what's helpful in card is that um, we don't even need to take share to grow, just given the secular tailwind that we have in the card business on the electronification of cash. And we're, so we're taking share merchant acquiring, yes. And we expect to do, take more share in the, in the future. Speaking of the future, um, can you guys give us some color on what your first read of Libra is, that, you know, the Facebook uh, announcement about the process, uh, payments uh, system that they're going to uh, initiate? Yeah, so just to put it in perspective, Gary, we've been talking about 
uh, blockchain for seven years and very little has happened, and you're going to be talking about Libra three years from now. So I wouldn't spend too much time on it. We, we don't mind competition, and the request is always going to be the same. The governments are, are going to, we want a level playing field, and governments are going to insist that people who hold money or move money all live according to rules where they have the right uh, controls in place. No one wants to aid the bad terrorism or criminal activities, and that's going to be true for everybody involved in this. And obviously, banks have been doing either KY, KYC, BSAMO for a long period of time, and those standards, I think, will just become for everybody at one point, and they should. Thank you. Our next question is from John McDonald of Autonomous. Hi, I wanted to ask uh, about the CCAR, and you got a big authorization this year. How did you approach the CCAR plan this year in relation to your long-term you know, CET1 targets, the 11 and 12 that you've talked about? Sure. So as, as we think about capital distribution, first, uh, you know, we would start by always saying that we prefer to use our capital to invest and grow our businesses. Uh, and then to have a competitive, competitive and sustainable dividend and only then to return excess capital to our shareholders. And so uh, we are pleased with the approval and the additional capacity um, to, uh, to return that uh, $29.4 billion to shareholders. Having said that, we are still targeting the upper end of the 11 to 12% range. We're always going to want to have a management buffer because, as I had said, you know, our, our first priority will always be to invest and grow our businesses, and then, of course, there remains, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty in terms of the regulatory capital framework. Um, and then, importantly, we wouldn't actually need to make that decision for a few more quarters, given the way the capital distribution plan is laid out over four quarters. Uh, but as of now, we are still targeting the upper end of 11 to 12 percent. Okay, thanks, Jen. And any updated thoughts on CISO, or could you remind us of what your thoughts on initial impact there? Thanks. Sure. So uh, hasn't changed from Investor Day. Our range uh, continues to be four to six billion, and uh, you know we're we're prepared for uh, the January one implementation. Just to uh, take this chance, so CCAR is one test a year on stress. We do 120 a week, and so we are always prepared for stress. CCAR has us losing 20 or 30 billion dollars over the nine consecutive quarters. I just want to remind you all that in the nine quarters after Lehman, the real stress event, we made $20 or $30 billion. And CCAR assumes you're going to grow your balance sheet. It assumes you've got to continue your dividends and stuff like that. We have plenty of capital. I mean, our capital cup runneth over, and we prefer to deploy that capital. And remember, things like opening branches, for every branch will eventually use $10 million of capital. So for the branches will eventually be $4 billion of capital. So restraints on growth, also restraints on capital usage and the ability to finance the U.S. economy. So we're really optimistic about our ability to somehow use our capital, including like the instrument acquisition we just did, which I think closes sometime soon. Uh, so. Our next question is from Betsy Grasick of Morgan Stanley. Hey, good morning. Um, Jamie, you mentioned about blockchain. We've been hearing about it for seven years and not much has happened, but I think you at JPM have built a blockchain solution for at least your correspondent banks. And I guess I wanted to understand where you think you're planning on taking that right now. It's just a AML KYC uh, use case, but is that something that you think you could deliver more functionality over, over time? 
So we think the blockchain is real, but and the reason it takes so long is you have to people agree to the protocols, people write a lot of code to get into it. But I, the one you're referring to, IAN, is think of an information network of banks. So right now banks transfer a lot of information among each other. You know, think of trade finance and correspondent banking and stuff like that. So I think we have like 120 banks signed up. We're going to have four. So right now it's four bank wholesale use uh, to have immediate information. They all have the same information. You can move things. But eventually you'll be able to move money quicker with data. So yeah, we're, we're optimistic about that. And we're going to roll it out as soon as we can and constantly test it and make sure it's secure and all that. I remind people, you know, when it comes to moving money, Chase change moves $6 trillion a day. Quite securely and quite uh, uh, quite cheaply. So you got to look at the problem you're trying to solve. But you know, people legitimately said, "Well, they didn't have real-time payments." That was true. And now we do effectively Zelle for P2P, and now we do effectively something that's built, uh, called RTP real-time payments through TCH. So we are building the things that the future is going to want: APIs, blockchain ledgers that have much more data, a real-time movement of money uh, that also goes through floor checks, etc. So. We're quite optimistic about it. It's going to take a while to get everyone using it. One day, will that be opened up to a broader customer set? Possibly. So one of the things that's coming out in these, you know, Senate and and uh, House Financial Services Banking Committee meetings, is this, you know, desire for real-time payments, a desire for, you know, a cheaper solution for payments. Um, and that's you know supposedly what Libra is going to offer, but to your point, it seems like you're already doing that. The question is, how do you, how do we think about the outlook for interchange? And is is there, you know, what, what's your strategy towards interchange pricing here as we go over this yes, through so this period? When issues get raised, there is real time P2P free, cheap, and secure called Zell. So you know when people say do it, that's already done. That's not cross border. So there are people who might want to do that cross-border. Remember, cross-border remittances are much, much smaller than actual use of debit card, credit card, payment systems here. And the bank is built a real-time payment system, which is actually already in use. And to me, the issue there is going to be fraud. You know, to make sure in real-time payments, you also put it through effectively real-time uh, uh, floor checks and stuff like that. So, you know, in the United States, credit card, debit card, you know, these are people love these cards. The beneficiary is the consumer. They always remember. That's who we're here to serve, and and you know someone's going to pay eventually for you know services provided. But people like their credit cards. They use their credit cards far more than they use their debit cards. I don't remember the last time I used my debit card. Yeah, well, you get rewards. It's great. Um, okay, and, thanks. And, and JP Morgan, I mean, you're getting more free stuff. You get free. You can buy and sell stock for free. We just gave you a very good. It just got rolled out. We only have a few accounts, but robo investing. Very cheap, very clear. So we're going to take and give our clients more and better and faster and cheaper all the time. And how we package that with Sapphire Banking or Sapphire Card or, or discounts and mortgages, they'll always remain to be seen. But, uh, but uh, the future is very bright because if we can do more for our customers, that's a very good thing. And, and don't forget on credit cards, you get charged back rights and you get the float. Right. And you get, you, know, you go on, if you're a Chase customer, you get your FICO score for free. You're going to be able to, you got, we're going to tell customers a great financial education how they can improve their FICO score. Uh, you, know, you get offers like this Chase Oil, sell them a Chase Oil, I think it's just, I mean, you don't really market, but it's really taken off. I mean. Sure. So the, the Chase offers, we talked about that and Investor Day. It's like a really powerful flywheel where we can, we can deliver uh, you know, value to our large merchant clients in terms of being able to bring a very large customer base to them, and then we can deliver that value to our customers 
uh, at zero cost to us. And so, as I said in the presentation, we've had over 60 million Chase offers activated. And so, this is really powerful and benefits not just our consumers, but our, our large merchant clients and at zero cost to us. So that message of more efficient, less cost, maybe needs to get heard on the Hill as well. Yeah. And we, we talk to Hill all the time, and you know, a lot of people understand that. And of course, they always want you to do a better job for consumers, which we agree with them. Yeah, I guess the, the final question here is just on the underbanked. Is there something or is there an offer that you have for them? Are you considering that? Because that, you know, I'm just thinking about where fintech's trying to exploit you, and you know, I know it's a catchphrase, underbanked, um, that you know is being used by labor. Doesn't necessarily to me seem like it's it's solving anything for them, but maybe you've got a better solution that we don't don't, don't focus on. So we have so, so, so much is Jamie Jake. We have I think 25 percent of our branch in LMI neighborhoods. When we go to those neighborhoods, we do some philanthropy. We're doing more and more financial education, which I think is really important. I just mentioned. Uh, the FICO score, but think of there might be other things we can do. We do chase chats, so get people into the branch to educate them about saving, FICO scores, uh, what you need to do to, to uh, get a mortgage to buy a house and stuff like that. And then we have a product which we think is great called Secure Banking. And think of it as a card, but it's the full thing. You, it's, you, you can't overdraft. I think it's $4.95 a month. Uh, but you can use ATMs. You can have direct deposit. You can do uh, online mobile payments and stuff like that. So we think it's a great product for the underbanked. And I think that's going down 25% or, uh, and we're kind of pushed that a little bit more. So we always try to come to things. And then we also have special, I call it venture banking, the entrepreneur color fund. We're making loans to entrepreneurs of color that are not traditional bank loans, but help them grow their businesses. So we're finding a lot of ways to do it. And a lot of folks in Congress understand that I would say we're at the forefront of that. You know, FinTech, of course, you know, all these things are trying to eat your lunch. And that's, I think that's good. That's called American capitalism. And we have to stay on our toes to compete. But we are. Like, when Jim was at CARD, you know, she rolled out last year and asked the last, chase my plan and chase my loan so that people can use their credit balances immediately to do what they want to do and do it uh, uh, well. We rolled out Zelle, P2P. That's good for everybody. So if you have a bank account, you can move money to your friends and relatives without having to pay the $10 uh, money changer fees and stuff like that. So we're all in and trying to do a better job for American consumer. We think we do a great job for them. And with a legitimate complaint, we'll fix it. That's right. And you mentioned the 25% in LMI in terms yes. of our branch footprint. In our expansion market, that's 30%. Right. Yes. Thanks. Our next question is from Ken Usden of Jefferies. Uh, thanks a lot. Good morning. Um, just wanted to ask on the balance sheet. Um, last year or so, you've seen a huge jump in the trading-related assets, and I know you had the accounting change that you mentioned in, in the um, supplement. But can you talk about is that related to um, market share gains? Is it related to just um, specific strategies with regard to managing liquidity? And and how and it doesn't seem to be equally growing on the asset side and the trading liability. So just can you explain the dynamics behind that and how that adds to, to the net interest income story? Thanks. Sure. So in terms of the balance sheet growth that you saw quarter over quarter, that was uh, primarily related to you know our balance sheet intensive businesses in the market businesses. Um, and then uh, we were down uh, on a spot basis uh, quarter over quarter. But you know we start with deposit growth, and so we you know have had strong deposit growth, and so you see that reflected uh, on the balance sheet side as well. And you would have seen securities balances up as well, and 
some of that is uh, adding duration and some of that is short duration securities uh, that are higher yielding than IOER um, and uh, yeah. So. Okay, so it is part of the liquidity management strategy. Okay, um, did Jen, did you say what the um, amount of the gains that you had on the loan sales this quarter? Just a quick If you get a higher return on repo, then you get an IOER. You're going to do that. If you get yep. a higher return in standardized using standardized capital on securities than you are on holding whole loans, you're going to do that. And that's what we've seen on some of these things. That's right. The securities growth I should have mentioned was also. Do the uh, home sales and home lending. Right. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. And did you did you say what the amount? Can you tell us what the amount of the gains on the loan sales this quarter were, if they were above trend? Uh, we haven't disclosed the amount of the gains, and we had some loan sales in the fourth quarter, the first quarter, and the second quarter. The first and second quarter, uh, in terms of the notional amount, the first quarter was about seven billion, and the second quarter was about nine billion, so just a little bit more. The gains in the second quarter net network they show up in different places, but not yeah, much, yeah. not material. Yeah. Got it. And lastly, just uh, any thoughts on the investment banking pipeline and just the continuation of uh, you know the the outlook of on across the buckets there. Thanks. Sure. So in terms of the investment banking pipeline, I'll just remind you that the third quarter is typically a seasonally lower quarter, and so sequentially you should think about IBCs being down a bit. Um, that said, the pipeline is healthy, although off uh, a record performance last year, which is a function of a reversion to more normal levels of activity as well as some uh, overhang from macro uncertainty. Um, in M&A, uh, you know, still feels very healthy and it's still a space where companies uh, are looking for synergistic opportunities for growth, uh, especially in North America, perhaps Europe a bit more muted. Um, ECM, we had a very strong second quarter, so uh, that will taper off in the second half a bit, but I would say deals are getting done well in the current environment. And then uh, DCM, DCM will be more subdued, um, reflecting a slowdown in acquisition financing activity as well as uh, refinancing opportunities, but uh, albeit with a good backdrop uh, for new issuance given the rate environment. Our next question is from Matt O'Connor of Deutsche Bank. Good morning. So I realize rate expectations can change quickly, but how do you think about managing the company in a rate environment that follows uh, the curve that's out there, you know, for three to four cuts? Um, and you said earlier, you know, you wouldn't cut back on technology, but are there other areas and expenses? Do you think about managing the balance sheet and the liquidity a little bit different? Sure. So in terms of balance sheet management, we manage the balance sheet in both directions. Um, it's a negatively convex balance sheet, and so all else being equal, as rates are declining, uh, we would naturally just drift shorter, driven both by assets and liabilities. So you would expect us to add uh, duration, which we did this quarter. Um, but we're not going to change the way we run the company because of the rate environment. We're going to continue serving our clients uh, investing with discipline and managing the balance sheet across all dimensions, that being capital, liquidity, and duration. And then in terms of expenses, again, we're, we're not going to change the way we run the company because of an interest rate environment. And I'll just say again that the, the range of outcomes are very broad here. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, if, if we end up with insurance cuts, um, it's a temporary headwind. And if we end up with, you know, cuts in response to 
a broader economic slowdown, you know, there will be a lot more to talk about. But as Jamie always says, we're, we're not going to change the way we run the company because of the uh, macro environment. That said, in a broader slowdown, obviously there are natural levers on uh, volume-related expenses. Uh, and, you know, we redecision a large part of our investment portfolio on an annual basis. We will always continue to invest in the things that we think are important, but we would have that opportunity, depending upon the opportunity, to take a look at that. Remember, in a real recession, okay, there are always opportunities to reduce your costs, uh, and vendors fall all over themselves to give you better deals and stuff like that. There are also huge opportunities to spend your money wisely. So sat by a card was birthed in, in 09. And you, know, you could imagine that you say, okay, well, let's not, we have this great opportunity, but we're not going to take it. And so I think you've got to be very careful. The other thing is marketing money is usually better spent in a downturn. The, the returns on it usually double. And you talked about the capital and, and your thought process there. Um, obviously, the authorization of the buybacks is, is a very big number. Is it your um, expectations that you will use it all, or is that still to be determined based on balance sheet growth, stock price, and the environment? I would say still to be determined. Our, our uh, first choice will always be to use our excess capital uh, to invest and grow our business. So, so still to be determined. And as you know, it's over four quarters, um, and so you know we have time to to think about it. But obviously, please have the flexibility. Is the timing of that even, or is there flexibility there too? It has been in the past, but that's, we we can change it every day. Our next question is from Saul Martinez of UBS. Hey, good morning. A um, couple of questions. First, um, on the NII outlook beyond this year, and, and you know, I fully appreciate you, you, you're, you're not giving guidance beyond this year, um, but you, you do have the, the guidance from Investor Day out there of a sustainable NII of 58 to 60 billion that was set in a, a very, very different rate environment. Um, if we were to see multiple rate cuts, how do we think about that guidance and how, I mean, what are some of the, um, some of the moving parts that might get you perhaps to the lower end of that 58 to 60 billion? Is it simply uh, dependent on how the, the economy responds, deposit pricing? If you can just kind of, you know, outline what you think some of those moving parts are. Sure. So the guidance we gave at Investor Day, uh, steady state, 58 to 60, I would say largely still stands. Importantly, because when we talked about that at Investor Day, we weren't assuming any further benefit from rates. So we were assuming that any incremental increases in rates would be offset and repriced. And so the majority of that growth was going to come from balance sheet growth and mix. And if you remember the slide, there were a number of arrows on the slide. Even, even at that time, which was obviously a different rate environment, um, we were implying that there were a number of different paths to get there. And so uh, that obviously continues to be true. And so there may be a different path to get there. It may take a little bit longer, but we still believe in that steady state number because we still believe uh, in the growth of the franchise. Okay. Okay, that's helpful. If I could change gears a little bit, you um, you recently announced that you're you're closing thin or you close thin, um, and I think the, the stated logic is you learned that millennials don't need a separate brand or 
or experience. But can you just elaborate on the logic there and, and what you learned from that experience? Because it, it does seem to maybe fly in the face of what some other um, entities or, or financial institutions are doing with their digital bank strategy. That's right. I was just going to say, we, we, we learned a lot in FIN. Uh, you said it, you know, that, that we learned that importantly the power to change brands um, certainly means that we don't need a separate brand. Um, we also learned about a number of features that our customers love, and we were able to reuse those features and port them over to the Chase mobile app. Um, and so I think we, we always need to be testing and learning and doing things like this and not afraid to shut them down when we've learned what we needed to learn and, uh, and can serve our customers through the primary Chase mobile app. We've learned a lot like that, how to do digital account openings only digital. Because when you do it out of a, a retail bank, you tend to rely on what you already have. So there's a lot of lessons there. We, you know, we always get be learning some kind of skunk works and learning from things like that. And so we don't look at those kind of things like failures at all. That is how you learn. And Jeff Bezos will tell you, you know, mistakes are good. Mistakes are what make you smarter and better. And so I hope we make some really good mistakes uh, that can teach us all of our business at one point. The people doing Finn did a great job. They're embedded. And by the way, you can open a Chase account now and never go into a branch. And you can open an account when it takes open an account. It takes minutes to open an account. So we, we got much better at digital only, but we got separated from the physical uh, branch system. Yeah, and the digital account opening is now about 25% of our new account activity. And we're going to be doing that in small business and merchant processing and all these various things. Got it. Okay. Thanks very much. Our next question is from Eric Compton of Morningstar. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. So this question kind of ties into some of the items already mentioned, uh, longer term kind of tech focused and also related to FIN. Um, so there has been some press recently about reasons for closing down the FIN app. And uh, w one of the items that was mentioned was some of the difficulties banks can potentially run into with their uh, legacy platforms, which for the most part are built on COBOL, um, which has been around since the 60s. And you know, depending on who you talk to, these legacy platforms uh, can either be, you know, like huge problems for banks or not really a big deal. So I guess from the outside, at least for me, it can be kind of hard to tell, you know, what really is going on there. So my question is, as you compete with fintech firms who are building new platforms from scratch, how do you strategically view dealing with your own legacy platforms? Uh, is there a need to kind of redo these things eventually in order to actually compete uh, with newer tech over time? Uh, do these legacy platforms uh, really hamstring you in any way? Uh, or is, is the hype around those issues really overdone? And if so, why? Thanks. Well, the hype has been around now for the better part of a decade, right? And we seem to be doing fine. But there is true, and some of these legacy platforms are also the reason why you have 50 million customers. But it is true that over time these platforms be reformulated and refactored to be cloud eligible and things like that. And those things are more efficient. So your costs will go down, your error rates will go down. So the way I look at it a little bit is we have we run like six or seven thousand applications. Over time, those will be modularized and being refactored to be cloud eligible with our own private cloud or a public cloud. And yet they will be more efficient. But we also have tons of uh, of new digital platforms, AI, that are built around these things that do the customer service side that they see. They can open accounts in minutes, you get your free credit journey, you get, you know, we can modify so many things in you know, days and weeks as opposed to years because you're not uh, mucking with the whole legacy system. And so it's a little bit of both. 
But, it, but those numbers are embedded in our text bank. The refactoring, building data centers, you know, getting better, adding AI, they're already in those numbers. And we have no further questions at this time. Oh, thank you very much, Jen. You did a great job. We'll talk to you all in a quarter. Thank you. Thank you for participating in today's call. You may now disconnect.